You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 8th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. Are Chinese economic figures any more trustworthy when they're bad? Pakistan votes in circumstances even more fraught than usual, and Australians will no longer be obliged to pretend to their bosses that they were underground when they called. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Nina Dos Santos and Jonathan Fenby will discuss the day's big stories. And our weekly letter from is a letter from Los Angeles. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller. We will meet tonight's panel shortly, and they are here. We're not just stalling for time, but we will start the programme properly with a breaking and developing story. Former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has been instructed to surrender his passport in what appears a significant escalation of ongoing investigations into his attempts to hang on to his job after losing the election of 2022. Police have conducted a series of related raids across Brazil, searching 33 properties and arresting four people, all believed to be former aides to former President Bolsonaro. I'm joined with more on this by our senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, who has been paying very close attention to this. Um, Fernando, what do we actually know for sure? Well, first of all, this is a big investigation. It's been a 134-page court order. Uh, But so far, uh, it seems that they are accusing, actually, Bolsonaro to agree and even draft a few changes in a decree that would basically sought to implement a coup d'etat in Brazil. And in this document he said, uh, you know, that we shouldn't trust the political, the vote, electronic voting in Brazil. And he said that there will be some arrests of Supreme Court judges, including his arch enemy, Alexandre de Moraes, the president of Senate. Uh, so, I mean, they're getting quite close. There are rumors, there's even a video of Bolsonaro discussing this with other military people as well, uh, that he wanted to implement, that he, he would at least agree with a potential coup d'etat in Brazil. Uh, The instruction to hand in his passport can only be that he is assumed to be a flight risk, and he has, of course, left Brazil since losing that election. He spent a period sulking in Florida. Um, But does that in... Brazilian circumstances sound like the sort of thing that is a prelude to somebody being actually arrested and charged. I think so. I, I, I think there is a risk and, and that's why it's such a big story. And, and apparently they have a lot of proof because, as I said, it's not just Bolsonaro, even people that are very close to him, including his running mate in 2022, General Walter Braga Neto, Valdemar Costa Neto. But all I say is that the country is, you know, you know, Andrew's very divided country. So, of course, Bolsonaro still has a lot of supporters. So I think they have to be very careful what they do to Bolsonaro. I think a prison could be quite difficult. Remember what happened to Lula as well. He was in prison for 580 days. I'm not sure if the country really... I, I think it would take some time. If he really goes to prison, I think we need more proof of that. I think we need a slightly longer investigation for it as well. I mean, it, it is no small change, obviously, to arrest, charge and possibly convict and imprison 
isn't a former president, though, as you remind us, it's not without precedent in very recent Brazilian history. But will the current authorities be mindful of trying to handle this sensitively? Does Bolsonaro still have any kind of constituency that might be persuaded to turn out for him? I think there are two sides here. Yes, they have to be very sensitive about it. And yes, Bolsonaro certainly has a constituency. But, you know, we compare a lot Bolsonaro with Trump. But I think Brazil is slightly different. I think the situation in the US, I think Trump is much more powerful. Mm. Uh, Bolsonaro undeniably has his fans. Probably, you know, it's a guess here because uh, I would say 20% of the Brazilian people who vote for Bolsonaro no matter what. But let's remember, Brazil will have like 30 political parties. There's been other leaders from the right as well. So in that sense is different. But some people are saying, including our Supreme Court judge, Alexandre de Moraes, I mean, they're basically enemies. We know that. So I think that there is a desire for some people that they really want to see Bolsonaro in jail, especially if there's more real proof that he really wanted to implement a coup d'etat, uh, which is, is a horrendous crime uh, to a democracy. I mean, anywhere in the world, but of course in Brazil as well, especially with our past of a military dictatorship. Well, we will be following this story, of course, in coming days for the moment, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to The Daily on Monocle Radio, and we can bring the panel in now. They were here all along. I cannot be clear about that. Uh, I am joined today by Nina Dos Santos, international broadcast correspondent, formerly CNN's Europe editor, and by Jonathan Fenby, former editor of the South China Morning Post and the author of a daunting number of books. Um, by way of light introductory banter, you both have China-related things to discuss, which is good because we will shortly be discussing China for further. Uh, But uh, Jonathan, you have a book to flog. I have a book indeed, which is coming out uh, at the end of this month, uh, which is a paperback version of a book called The Wonders of China, which is mainly about Chinese history and culture. Uh, So this is not so much a critique of modern China as a celebration of pre-modern China? Indeed, indeed. Uh, I've done the critique uh, (laughs) in others of the the, the daunting length uh, uh, (laughs) list of books that you cited. Uh, This is more about the history, about the inventions, about, you know, writing gunpowder, great cities and so on. I mean, I, I do enjoy a proper local radio variety question, so I'm going to spring one on you right now. Do you have a favourite wonder of China? Um, I think probably the Yangtze Gorges were uh, among the, the most wonderful places that we visited when we were in China. A plug there for the Yangtze Gorges as well. Um, well ne- wonder, wonders of China, it's called. <laughs> wonders in of China. In paperback at your good bookshop uh, or online. The Wonders of China, Jonathan Fenby, available very shortly. <laughs> yeah. It would be an excellent, and this is a, a seamless link, Nina, um, excellent, slightly belated Chinese New Year gift. Uh, you have recently been celebrating that with the people who run this country. 
That's right, the wonders of uh, Westminster and the River Thames <laughs> have been at a reception um, to ring in the Chinese Lunar New Year, the Year of the Dragon, so Chung Hei Fat Choi, uh, to those listening. I'm sure I probably butchered that, Jonathan, with your excellent well, sounded all right. <laughs> knowledge of China. Um, you know, uh, and I must say, every time I sit in the studio, I feel more and more intimidated because I'm probably the only person who's invited on the show who hasn't yet written a book. Um, so I need to get on with that. Um, but yeah. Well, that can be arranged. <laughs> oh, I, I need to yeah, ask and, you for and, all of those tips. Uh, and it is, I can assure you, an instant passport to limitless wealth and, and wildly inflated. <laughs> you you uh, can see the limousines waiting outside. Exactly, yeah. and, and vastly inflated <laughs> self-esteem. You, ha- you have all of that to look forward to. But let's look at China, which not for the first time in recent memory has published somewhat vexing economic data. For the fourth consecutive month, prices have dropped, especially food prices, which are down nearly 6% year on year. While listeners in many jurisdictions, not least the United Kingdom, may now be thinking this sounds more like cause for fireworks and flypasts than alarm, it suggests a lack of confidence among participants in Earth's second biggest economy, which is the kind of thing which might well catch up with the rest of us. Um, Jonathan, first of all, and I know this is the question we always uh, frame around Chinese economic data, uh, would we bet our house on these numbers? No. Uh, the, the official figure for last year's GDP growth was 5.2%. Um, a very esteemed uh, American think tank analysis tank, Rhodium, uh, reckoned it was actually 1.8%. So you get an idea. You know, things are uh, very different. Uh, and for a very long time, China has set targets for each year, and they are suspiciously close to announcing a figure, announce a figure at the end of the year, which is suspiciously close to the target. Uh, so just quickly, do is it therefore a possibility that things may actually be even more rickety than these figures suggest? Yes. Indeed. Well, that's that's a, that's a heartwarming <laughs> thought, um, Nina. It, it's very difficult, as well, obviously, to generalise about what is driving economic trends in a country so unfathomably vast. But do we think this is possibly still some sort of COVID nineteen hangover? Well, it seems as though China's had um, a really tough job getting over the shock to its economic system uh, caused by COVID. Not just the zero, uh, very draconian zero uh, COVID policies implemented by Xi Jinping, but but also just the soft of world demand ever since, really, mm. and sort of impediment to trade that we've seen interruptions to world trade around the world, not least even, for instance, in the Red Sea. Um, and also we've seen this softening, not just of uh, demand internationally, but also domestic demand as well, which uh, she is quite loath to try and support through, you know, economic benefit. Uh, benefit plans and so on and so forth and uh, a lot of economists uh, indeed I think it was actually the Economist magazine at the end of last year that posed this big question on the front cover saying are we seeing the Japanization of the Chinese economy which is a really terrifying prospect when you think you know you could be into a 20 year cycle of deflation and malaise um, for what is now the world's biggest biggest economy on aggregate um and the, the, the problem, well, there is an underlying problem and a more immediate problem on top of the ones that Nina has, has mentioned. The underlying problem is that since Chinese growth really took off in the 1970s, it's been fueled largely by debt borrowing, uh, and that is now coming 
home to bite the government uh, in the back of its foot, as it were. I mean, local governments are hugely indebted, uh, etc., etc., and individuals are also uh, very hugely indebted, and they've been hit individuals in China by the collapse of the property market, which is where you used to put your money. You put your savings buying a third, fourth, fifth uh, apartment uh, because there were very few other places to put your money. Uh, And now Evergrande and other uh, big uh, property giants have run into the debt problem, basically, and are close to bankruptcy. And uh, a lot of people have lost a lot of money, and so they're not spending. Uh, Nina, just finally on this, because these figures are still being absorbed by the financial world, but beyond that, is it a reach, perhaps, to worry about a continually tanking economy uh, causing the government of China to do something drastic? Well, it depends what uh, drastic action they could take. I mean, the central bank has already cut bank reserves by the most in two years, a sign that they, you know, fear that there is really some alarm that they have to address. Um, But as Jonathan was just pointing out before, there's this inherent tension, isn't there, between... um, what Xi envisions for the future economic cycle of China and what his own economists are willing to admit. You were talking, for instance, about the official GDP numbers that are 52 5.3% for growth last year. That gives ostensibly uh, the Chinese political apparatus enough cover to say, well, that meets our 5% target, at least on paper, so we don't need to do anything quite yet. But the real concern is, what are these figures actually masking? Should the central bank start cutting interest rates aggressively? Yeah. Perhaps they possibly can't, given the debt bubble you were talking about. And there's the under, another underlying uh, issue, is the extent to which Xi Jinping actually is a fan of the kind of growth which we got used to, you know, turbo charge 10% a year, etc. and so on. Uh, his priority is more to strengthen the Communist Party state. Uh, and if that involves some slowing down of the economy, he may in fact be relatively uh, happy with that. The problem is if then that leads to the Communist Party losing support, will she turn to adventurism, uh, obviously invasion of Taiwan, uh, to stoke up nationalism and get the people behind him? And that's the open question for the next two or three years. Well, to Pakistan, where the considerable task of counting the votes cast in today's national and provincial elections is underway. While no Pakistani election has ever been entirely straightforward, this one has been weirder than most. The country's probably most popular politician, former Prime Minister Imran Khan, is in prison, his party compelled to run as a movement of independence. And on election day itself, authorities have suspended all mobile phone and mobile data services, ostensibly a security measure, though this appears to be an explanation bought by few. Um, Nina, the it follows yesterday's bombings in Balochistan uh, against uh, election-related targets, which were dreadful and did, did kill at least 28 people. Uh, nevertheless, uh, are we entirely convinced that cutting off everybody's mobile phone was actually a security measure? I think human rights organisations and election observers, indeed the United States, which is one of Pakistan's most important allies, um, 
probably took a sharp intake of breath uh, when those uh, phones were switched off. Ostensibly, the uh, you know Pakistan is a country that is with a very powerful military and security mm. and intelligence apparatus, and um, it's a country that's had lots of problems with terrorism. They say that they have to turn these phones off a to stop um, terrorists coordinating their activities, targeting those uh, polling stations, or also to just remote control set off a bomb through um, you know the a mobile phone signal. But obviously the big concern here is that this is a method of trying to stop Imran Khan's supporters from amassing in front of polling stations if indeed you know the result is one that they don't agree with or the result is one that is disputed because going into this election there's a lot of uh, concerns about it may not being fair. Uh, well, there are a lot of concerns about whatever the eventual result will be, Jonathan, not least around whatever mandate or what kind of mandate the new prime minister will be able to claim, given that Imran Khan has been elbowed out of it. Now, the, the two contenders are, of course, uh, Nawaz Sharif, who has had three previous cracks at the job, none of which have ended well, um, and another heir to the Bhutto dynasty, uh, whose mother was prime minister and whose father and I think one grandfather were both president. Um, But are we looking at yet another illustration of the eternal truth in Pakistan, which is that whoever you vote for, the army wins? Yes, uh, the army will decide. Uh, I think there's absolutely no doubt about that. One must assume the army was behind the ban on mobile phones and other things today, although that doesn't actually address the the underlying security uh, issues which are there and will continue to be there and the army will continue to play its role as uh, the puppet master. Um, Nina, polls have suggested that the likeliest next Prime Minister extraordinarily uh, is the comeback, 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 comeback kid, uh, Nawaz Sharif. He has had three goes now at doing what no Pakistani Prime Minister has ever accomplished and actually finishing a five-year term. Um, Do we like his chances at the fourth go-round? Well, given the fact that already... uh Whatever happens in this election, it may end up being inconclusive. Um, It's not looking uh, terribly positive for him. But I think the backdrop of the 76 years of Pakistan's independence has always been extremely volatile politically, hasn't it? With very short-lived governments for the reasons that you mentioned, the power of the military. And by the way, the power of the military is crucially linked to Pakistan's role as an ally to the United States in the war on terrorism. You've got to remember that in the decade after 9-11, Pakistan um, was granted something like 26 billion dollars mm. in USAID. So this is, you know, there are crucial foreign powers as well that have a huge stake in in Pakistan's future. It China, also is a nuclear China country. Also, yes. Yeah, it's a nuclearized Which, country, yeah. and the sands are shifting around it with China uh, growing power in this region. The turbulence in Afghanistan and the United States pulling out of there. So no, uh, given the fact that it's all looking extremely volatile, and not to mention the fact that there was, you, you mentioned Balochistan before, um, Iran launched action against a group Mm -hmm. there inside Pakistan's own borders. So there's fears that the conflict in the Middle East might spread further towards Pakistan as well. Just a final quick thought on this one, Jonathan, and returning to that eternal truth of Pakistan, i.e. that the army always wins, does the actual result of this election, whatever it ends up being, make much difference in a global context? Will it alter the way that Pakistan interacts with and is understood by the world it depends as nina would follow on what nina was saying on how 
much uh, Pakistan fragments uh, as a result of this and if, w- how the government plays off the United States, to put it crudely, the United States against China. I mean, China's had huge uh, investment under the Belt and Road Initiative in opening up a corridor from southwest China through Pakistan to the ocean um, and has got a lot of it invested there. And uh, Pakistan may try to balance Washington and Beijing, but it may come a cropper. Well, sticking with the theme of elections, while Pakistan's voters may have reason to complain that their choices were limited, they enjoyed a bountiful smorgasbord of options compared to what Russians will be presented with next month, which today was trimmed still further as token anti-war candidate Boris Nadezhdin was punted off the ballot by the Electoral Commission, claiming irregularities in the signatures submitted with his candidate application. He plans to challenge this in Russia's Supreme Court, and one can only wish him well with that enterprise. Vladimir Putin now only needs see off three opponents, currently polling at about 5% between them. The elderly communist Nikolai Karotinov, hyper-nationalist headbanger Leonard Slutsky, and the relatively sensible centrist Vladislav Davankov, who obviously has no hope at all. Um, Nina, to Boris Nadezhdin, first of all, is it not actually more surprising that he was ever allowed within a mile of the ballot in the first place? Because to be clear, he is a former ally of of assassinated opposition figure Boris Nemtsov. He has been a genuine anti-war voice and as outspoken an anti-war voice as one really dares be in Russia. This is what surprised me as well. I'm Mm. glad that you picked up on that. Um, He's a 60-year-old councillor from a town outside of um, Moscow, and um, he's been active in politics, as you said, for about 30 years, you know, all the time that Vladimir Putin has been there in the Kremlin. Um, But it it appears as though he sort of tried to slip in his candidacy at the last moment, sort of catch them on guard. And now uh, the Electoral Commission has ruled that they think that 9,000 of the signatures among the 150,000 signatures that he's put forward to advance his candidacy, they say that they're anomalies with 9,000 of those. So they blocked him. Now, he, his counter-argument is, well, look, this is just, you know, transliteration issues in terms of people having signed their name in writing and it's been mistyped. Um, essentially finding fault with any particular, um, you know, just administrative reason to try and block his candidacy. Um, but he does have the support of people like Alexei Navalny, um, uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, all of those kind of crucial, important Russian opposition figures in exile and obviously in Alexei Navalny's case, um, in a penal colony behind bars. Vladimir Putin, Jonathan, cannot possibly have been concerned that uh, Boris Nadezhdin was going to win this election or indeed that he was probably going to poll much beyond 10% if he was lucky. That tends to be what the second place getter is allowed have. Um, So what would Putin be worried about if we assume that this was either done on Putin's instruction or by an electoral commission anticipating Putin's desires? I think autocrats like Putin are always terrified of their own shadow. Uh, mm. In a sense, they they will always, uh, you know, it's, it's something you find uh, from autocrats like him, like Xi Jinping, and so on. They're all they need their enemies, uh, in a sense. And in this case, he needed an opponent who would be allowed to run. I would guess uh, for a certain time, and then would be disqualified on uh, real or imagined or conjured up uh, technical grounds. 
so Putin can then say <coughs> when he's interviewed by Tucker Carlson and others, uh, <laughs> look, I let an opposition voice be heard. Um, it's not my fault if he got uh, all his signatures wrong. I mean, is it nevertheless? Um, that, if you will. Uh, is it nevertheless imaginable, Nina, or at least is it imaginable that this is what Putin is imagining that the elections? You can rig them so much, but they're still unpredictable things to an extent. They can become a nexus of discontent, of pro of protest. There's reason for people to be out gathered in a political cause. They could go potentially a bit haywire if it's not all nailed down. I think the choreography is really important here, isn't it? He's a bit of a showman, Vladimir Putin. He doesn't yeah. like um, people amassing and protesting about, for instance, the war in Ukraine. And Boris Nazarstein was very vocal about that, saying that he wanted to stop the war in Ukraine and um, said that there were, quote-unquote, political prisoners uh, of Ukraine who were on Russian soil and he would free them. So, you know, um, drawing attention to how the war in Ukraine is going and the loss of Russian lives... At the same time, when, remember, we've had these rolling protests of wives and mothers now who broadly were originally quite nationalistic and supportive of Vladimir mm. Putin taking to the streets um, and just showing, you know, highlighting how many people are actually against the war in Ukraine rather than for it. I think that's what he doesn't want, that bad publicity. And also he doesn't want, I mean... <laughs> elections can get out of hand as you say Andrew but also he doesn't want the anti-Putin anti-war message to be spread too widely mm. uh, you can allow it a certain amount of air but after a while you have to choke it off well, to Australia, which has addressed one of the best yet one of the worst things about the modern world, which is that many of us can do our jobs more or less anywhere, more or less any time. Australia's Senate has passed a bill enshrining in law a so-called right to disconnect, i.e. the right to ignore out-of-hours calls or emails from the boss without fear of repercussion. Australia is not, however, the first country to do this. Germany, Belgium and Italy have similar laws. Um, I did want to establish a benchmark here by asking you each in turn uh, as people like myself who have worked a long time in a job with somewhat unpredictable hours um jonathan first of all what is what is the most annoying or vexatious out of hours call you have ever had or perhaps as a former editor ever made uh it was when i was uh, chief correspondent for reuters in paris and the phone rang at two thirty in the morning and a political uh, contact said de Gaulle uh, in the conditional, this was in 1970, is reported to be dead. Mm. Uh, and then put the phone down. Um, whatever the phrase was. Um, and uh, I lay awake for a long time thinking, is he dead or not? You can't use the conditional <laughs> in English. And eventually he rang back, the, the contact rang back and said, yes, he's dead. So... You uh, see, Nina, my own entry in this was a, well, it, it had to do with language. This is many, many years ago, and I think the magazine has now closed, so I'm safe. But I had been asked by an American magazine uh, to travel down to Dorset and interview Polly Harvey, a.k.a. PJ Harvey, and write a, I don't know, a thousand-word interview slash profile. Uh, I had been put through the full ringer of the unbelievably tedious, pettifogging American fact-checking and editing process. Um 
the magazine was based in New York, they had perhaps not taken the time difference into consideration when they made one final call about a sentence with too many E's in it or something. I exaggerate. Or just PJ. Yeah, yeah I, I exaggerate only slightly for comic effect. It was two o'clock in the morning uh, in London. I wasn't necessarily receptive to another call about a, you know, very, very quibbling copy editing uh, question at that time. I may have said something along the lines of, look, it's a thousand word profile of an indie rock singer. How good do you think it is actually going to get? Um, and I never wrote for them again. Uh, well, c- can you beat that? OK, so look, uh, we, when, I, when I worked at the start of my career in Rome, um, I covered the death of John Paul II, uh, Pope John Paul II, but I can tell you that there were many false um, false rumours of him having died before eventually he did pass away. So I've had a few of those midnight phone calls, Jonathan, and sat up there yes. and thinking, is it true or not? <laughs> Only to breathe a sigh of really few hours later. But I do have a better anecdote than that. And that was when the news desk of a US broadcaster I worked for, whose name I won't mention, called me up the night before my wedding day at 4.30 in the morning and asked if I had the spare pass to part of the studio building. Oh, there you go. Yeah, you, I'm glad we went to you last. You absolutely win. Um, but, but to return to this this law, Jonathan, and the, the there's an obvious fairness to this. If I'm not presently being paid for this time, it belongs to me. But does it not set up the problem that bosses, especially the kind of bosses that do phone people at four o'clock in the morning because they've lost something, they will start to gravitate towards those employees who will take that call? Absolutely. And, you know, there is the question of if you have a job, such as the ones we've been talking about, whether actually any time is can be cordoned off Mm. Uh, you know do you say i only work eight hours a day so this is eight in the morning to four in the afternoon don't call me after that but you may well be working after that um i mean how many of you nina uh, andrew have not had a thought at say 10 o'clock at night Particularly um, in the news industry, yeah. because it yes, goes exactly. so quickly. <laughs> so, so you can get it. And, and you have somebody like Tim Cook, you know, head of Apple, who was famous when he was head of the supply chain for calling people in Asia, particularly at four o'clock in the morning. And he made a huge success of it, and their shares probably zoomed. Because the, the, the idea here, Nina, is that there would not be repercussions for not picking up the phone if your boss calls at midnight or not answering an out-of-hours email. But how do you measure those repercussions? Well, I suppose the laws are only, and regulation is only as good as um, an employee's appetite for actually litigating that yes, and standing yeah, up uh, for those uh, rights. Yeah. And, you know, the UK is a, is, and, and the United States are places where, you know, with very flexible labour forces, you really see that um, in force. But I think it is important that we're seeing a shift in countries like France and Spain where, you know, workers do want to stand up for their, have, have more appetite to stand up for their workers' rights. The unions have a bigger say it is interesting that we're seeing them actually legislate for this um, because I'd have thought, actually, given the fact that we've had over the last few years, as you were saying, the work-from-home dynamic is prevalent now, we're seeing this far more cuddly corporate culture. I would have thought that there would be room for companies to sort of self-police this themselves. Although I will say, actually, one thing is it's not... Part of my issue is also it's not just the the calling at any old time or emailing at any old time. It's the fact that we have this proliferation of different messaging systems. So what tends to happen, for instance, in the news industry, you'll know this, Andrew, you get an email, then you get a WhatsApp, <coughs> then you get a Slack, then you get another email saying, did yeah. you see my email? And before you know it, 
it, you, you haven't actually communicated anything at all, irrespective of the time of day. So I think that's also another issue. I'm a bit, I'm a bit uncomfortable with you know, yeah. the need for real laws around this. And also the other thing is you may actually want to, to go on beyond the, the formal ending of the working day. Mm. I mean, I can remember at various newspapers I've worked at um, where actually most of the planning and a lot of the constructive thinking was done after the first edition had gone off when you went down to the pub or you went home <laughs> or, or you went to a restaurant and you were actually, you were working there, but it was, it, was, it was actually genuinely creative. I mean, I can remember a period in magazine journalism when a lot of ideas were had in the pub. A lot of them were just the following morning not to be, yes, ter- well, not to be exactly terribly that, good that, ones. That, that is true. I think broadcasters <laughs> often call the, the pub Edit 6, Edit Bay 6. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, with the spilling of that trade secret, uh, <laughs> Nina Dos Santos and Jonathan Fenby, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's show, it is time for our regular weekly Letter from Somewhere. This week it comes from Los Angeles and our US editor, Chris Lord. You may have heard that it's been raining in Southern California. Across the state, we're seeing mudslides, rivers overflowing and flooding. Historic rainfall is burying cars under piles of mud. Life-threatening flash flooding, torrential rains and mudslides. This week, Los Angeles has been pummeled by a blast of precipitation that blew in off the Pacific Ocean. Meteorologists have blessed these storms with cinematic-sounding names. The Atmospheric River, the Pineapple Express which belie the devastation that they've brought. There's been loss of life and homes destroyed. Karen Bass, the mayor of LA, declared a state of emergency amid mudslides, hurricane-force gales, and a few dramatic rescues. A dangerous swiftwater rescue caught on camera tonight in Pacoima after a man jumps into the raging water to rescue his dog that had been swept away. A clip there from the local ABC7 news station. Up to a foot of rain has fell in parts of the region since Sunday. This is extreme, but such downpours at the start of the year are becoming a bit of a trend. Twelve months ago, I picked my folks up from LAX, who were here on a visit from rainy Manchester, and arrived to driving rain and the news that it was sleeting in Santa Barbara. 2023 was one of the wettest years on record in California, and while it may have put a dampener on a few people's holidays, it also helped to quench one of the longest-running droughts in the state's history. So far, there's been little criticism of the authorities' response to the latest storms. But what's incredible to me is just how much of the water that fell on Los Angeles in the last few days will ultimately end up being flushed into the ocean. Only about 20% of rainfall that lands on the LA basin is actually captured for later use, when things inevitably dry up again. When this city was built, the priority was to get water away from homes as soon as possible. So it's storm channels, those vast concrete ravines that carve through the city, you can think of the famous car racing scene from Greece, send innumerable gallons of rainwater towards the LA River and ultimately to the ocean. Incredibly, LA imports about 60% of its water. Yet with water crises throughout the American Southwest, with parts of the Colorado River now running dry, this reliance on outside sources simply cannot go on as it has for much longer. In December, the LA County Board of Supervisors set out its first proper water plan with a view to collecting billions of gallons of water, ultimately 80% of all usage from local aquifers and reclaimed water and stormwater. It sounds great, but won't be fully in place until 2045. 
There has always been mythos attached to finding sources of fresh water in Los Angeles. In 1935, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California commissioned this film called 13 Golden Cities that tells the story of the region's earliest European settlers. I do know that this water is the most precious thing we have in all this country. If only we could be sure that we would always have enough of it. Then maybe someday we might have right here the cities of gold. Finding and harnessing water has a long and fraught political history too. Mulholland Drive is named after William Mulholland, a Belfast-born engineer who in the early 20th century built an aqueduct to bring gallons of water to the homes and orange groves of a rapidly growing LA. The aqueduct also sucked dry the farmland and livelihoods of the Owens Valley in a period in LA history that became known as the Water Wars and was evoked with some artistic license in the movie Chinatown. Gonna be a lot of irate citizens when they find out that they're paying for water that they're not gonna get. Oh, that's all taken care of. See, Mr. Gibbs, either you bring the water to LA or you bring LA to the water. The Mulholland story is a reminder that while California has abundant natural beauty, sustaining cities on its soil has not always been so assured. The place is prone to disasters of drought, earthquake, and as we saw just this week, some pretty extreme weather. Water, which every city needs to grow, has always come at a premium here. But as the cleanup gets underway and the sun comes out again, it's starting to look a bit like LA out of my window again. But to make an opportunity out of these biblical downpours, which we're told will become more frequent in the years ahead, LA must be ready the next time the Pineapple Express rolls into town. For Monocle in Los Angeles, I'm Chris Lord. Thank you, Chris. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Nina Dos Santos and Jonathan Fenby, also to Fernando Augusto Pacheco at the top of the show. Today's show was produced by Tom Webb and researched by Neoma Ekwe. Our sound engineer was Lily Austin. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.